into rings, right? Yes. No, I'm where keep going because I just wanted to start rolling with what you're saying. Where it's either spam or like people calling me for completely meaningless stuff. Yeah. And I, I kept realizing that back in the day, my grandparents, my grandparents were in the farm. My parents were in the city. We had the school year nine to, I mean, whatever, nine to three or something. And then school's off and I go out in nature and I spend time. So it's like people had their own lives and many things were happening in their lives. And then when they get together, which wasn't as often and they weren't in contact 24 seven, that you get stuff to talk about. Yeah. Now it's like every, every five minutes, somebody's calling you and they're calling out of boredom. But guess what? Mm-hmm. If they're bored and nothing is happening in their life, and the same is happening in your life. That conversation is worse than meaningless. In fact, it increases stress because you're sitting there and you're wondering, okay, so what should I talk about now yeah. rather than hanging up the phone because it's really not polite. Um, and I've been kind of rude lately. I've been telling some people, it's like, listen, I mean, call me when actually something, there's something to talk about, okay? I mean, like I got other things going on. Right. I don't want to be rude. I mean, I want to talk to you, but I want to talk to you when you have something to say to me. Don't just call me up and say, hey, what's going on? Is the sun shining in DC? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> Haven't been outside in a while. But we need to be cognizant of our communication and why are we communicating. There has to be a reason. There has to be a purpose. If it's just chat, chat, I mean, I get that every once in a while we need to sort of like release the tension. Sure. But the people that are calling me lately, they're not calling because they're under tension. They're calling because they have nothing else to do. And in a situation like that, it's really bad to call other people because it's like it's like there's nothing going on in your life don't try to sort of like replace the boredom by or masking it right yeah. uh, by calling somebody else in fact you should take that as a sign that something needs to change in your life right probably drastically so that you have so that you look forward to your next day not just be another boring you know dreary sort of like a passing through life kind of stage uh, but there are interesting things going, going like, you know, uh, what is going hunting? I, I, I remember you told me like every once in a while you go hunting, just yeah. spend time out in nature, yeah. do interesting new things. Yeah. Um, and if that's not the case, that what I'm saying is something needs to change. It should not be masked by calling somebody having a meaningless two hour conversation. It's really not helpful, n- neither for your life nor, nor for your health. Well, that is such a brilliant point. I've never thought about how like people are actually miscommunicating with these devices because it is true. We used to come together and have so much to share with one another. And now you can just go on somebody's feed and then you see what they're doing. So the next time you're together, you're like, oh yeah, I saw you did that thing. Okay, cool. And then (laughs) that's it. So it's like- That's it, conversation's over. Yeah, yeah, we're missing real communication because again, these devices are robbing us of so many things, including our relationship, you know, non-stressed, how we verbalize things to each other in person, versus just seeing what somebody else is doing all the time so and the other thing is the communication because it activates the second signal system which is pathological and i can kind of it kind of leads into why the i think ai is a really bad thing and it's not actually ai but basically uh the reason i brought up my grandparents back in it's like people need to be living their lives kind of like for a while you interacting with this thing outside what do you call it god or reality or whatnot Mm -hmm. That's really what you should be spending most of your time doing. Okay. And then this is what accumulates, lets you accumulate richness of experience that then you want to share with other people. Um, uh, uh, richness of experience doesn't come from constantly being in, interacting with other people on their day-to-day things, most of which are mundane, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only like when you let people have their space and time to deal with what's outside, uh, usually independently of other people, at least for a little bit, only then you kind of like you have to share something unique as an individual with the others. If all we're doing every five minutes, I'm seeing basically like just like you said, I'm glued to your feet. 
uh, and I see everything that's going, every mundane thing that's going on in your life, then when we meet each other, I mean, I don't know, unless something happened that's not on the feed that's really like catastrophic, which is otherwise, if it's not catastrophic, you're probably going to share on the feed, right? right? <laughs> but people even share catastrophic things on the feed. So chances are that everything that, that, that kind of like is, you know, that I may be interested in talking to you about, you've already shared, right? I think this, this, this needs to stop. And I think people are realizing it. Facebook is down. Uh, I think like 50 more or 60% their stock is down. The yeah. users peaked in 2012. There's something Facebook doesn't want to tell you, but they've been declining in usership since 2012. So that's like what full 10. Oh yeah. The report came out in um, by an investment bank and you know that, you know, they, these people know their stuff because they invest in Facebook. So they, they, they can go to Facebook and say, give us the numbers. I don't care what you tell the newspapers. So Facebook's uh, membership peaked in 2012 has been steadily declining. And in fact, most, most young people are not on Facebook. Um, if they do Facebook, they're only there to communicate with their, believe it or not, to keep in touch with older relatives who apparently do like Facebook. Um, uh, and the younger people are doing other things like maybe living their lives, maybe on TikTok, right? More more like, uh, you know, immersive, uh, more, more, more rich media. But even then, uh, it's not a coincidence that TikTok videos are only 10 seconds, right? It's not something you watch it, but then you go away. It's not, it's not meant to be. And I think the, whoever came up with this realized that we need maybe brief periods of like spiking our interest by looking at other people's stuff. But the rest of the time should be for us, right? And and our interaction with the world. Yeah. So that's why, I, I, that's why I think that's why things are going. But speaking of the second signal system, when we're constantly interacting in a digital format, most of which is uh, text, sometimes images and video, but it activates the second signal system. Um, and basically, the second signal system is pathological when driven to excess. Uh, the excessive verbosity, also known as logorrhea, uh, it's it, right, it's basically it stems from diarrhea, right? But it's basically like an abundance of words. It's actually a medical condition, and it's a, actually it's a sign uh, recognized by psychiatry and neurology as a basically a reliable sign of a number, potentially any of them, psychiatric or neurological conditions from depression to bipolar disorder, to mania, to psychosis, to multiple sclerosis, to Parkinson's disease, to Alzheimer's disease. All of these people are excessively wordy, but in a way that doesn't really make much sense. They're just pouring stuff out there, right? And their brain cannot relax. Well, by being constantly uh, you know, engaged, immersed in this digital media, we're constantly activating the second signal system. And like I said, that's pathological. It's not just a sign of bad things going on, but if you engage in it to a very large degree, it can actually trigger that pathology as well. So if you're like uh, lawyers are actually very well known to uh, uh, to be at much higher risk of things like um, uh, they score very high on the, uh, what do they call the Machiavellian, the dark triad, Machiavellianism, narcissism, I think it's also psychopathic. So basically there are uh, people that are too engaged in the second signal system are psychopaths. Um, I mean, they're on a spectrum, but, but you know, they're, you're there. The more you engage, the more you shift towards the you know, the pathological end of the spectrum. And that's what's happening when we're constantly engaged in this digital media. Speaking of which, that artificial intelligence thing that I mentioned just before I started recording, chat GPT, it's a language model. It's not a coincidence that basically the uh, uh, the economy and the powers that be that rule over us, that they want to move in this direction. It's because they, you know, it's the blind belief that you can create new knowledge by manipulating old knowledge, which is what language is. Now, what, it, what you can do is create a system that can actually reliably communicate with language like a human. But if you go, if you actually interact with this thing, you'll see that, first of all, it cannot discover anything new. Only humans, and it's, proven, it's been proven mathematically, 
that only humans can uh, create the so-called mutual information. I can send you the article later that you can post it for people that are interested mm -hmm. that only humans are capable of extracting new knowledge from matter or from a thing outside. Call the divine, call it reality, call it matter, call it energy, but only humans can do that. Machines cannot. Machines are simply a combination of random and deterministic means, but they can only manipulate existing information. And the belief now, in for, for whatever reason, in, uh, in, in the economy and in general in the industry is that, well, if we have this body of knowledge, big data, we can extract some new knowledge from it. You cannot. You can find knowledge that was already there, but was hidden and somehow people, you know, neglected to see it or they couldn't, right? Uh, you can find some pesky little details that the humans are just, our brains are not that good. We're, we're good at seeing the big picture. Uh, but you can, no machine uh, can actually create, it doesn't matter how intelligent is marketed to be, can actually create new knowledge from existing knowledge. And humans cannot either, right? So if knowledge is knowledge is there, it's static, right? And then the only way, to, the only thing you can do is humans uh, can extract new knowledge and update the old one. Uh, no matter how rich the pool of knowledge is, if you give it to the machine, all you can do is manipulate it and combine it in different ways and throw something at you, which seems novel, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really represent new knowledge. Unfortunately, that, that thing, because it's so good at manipulating language, and because our culture is heavily based on kind of like language virtual interaction, it can probably replace, um, you know, most of the media that you're seeing out there, news media, especially the newspapers, the news articles, mm -hmm. that thing can write it, like in a, in a, in a flip second. That can happen, certainly. Uh, but uh, what else? Customer service? Forget about talking to a live human on the phone. Actually, even on the phone, you'll be talking to a thing because it's still language. It can, can actually very well process language. Uh, but not in a, in a novel way, you know, just mundane things like, okay, where is my package? Why is this thing delayed? I want to cancel my order, stuff like that. Yes, that can, you can do. Uh, and that means uh, large numbers of people that are currently employed in these, I would like to call subhuman positions. They don't really, you don't need intelligence to be in these positions. Uh, and this thing now will replace those humans. And I think that's a good thing, even though it'll be slightly annoying and inconvenient in the short term, is that these people will be forced to kind of pursue their, their real calling, which is to interact with the world and, you know, create novelty, you know, use the world to create novelty and enrich the existing pool of knowledge. While the manipulation of the already existing pool of knowledge, I think will be, will be taken over by AI because simply no human can compete with that. And they really are very good at manipulating the already existing pool of knowledge. Uh, but long story short, the second signal system on which AI is based is incredibly pathological, cannot create new knowledge. And, um, as several log logicians proved in the early 20th century, perhaps the most famous one of them is Kurt Gödel, uh, with his so-called incompleteness theorem. So he basically said that any formal system, which is system driven by rigid rules which do not change, um, such as mathematics or linguistics, uh, or in general things that are based on logic, contains in itself inherent paradoxes which cannot be resolved using the rules of the existing system. Um, a very famous uh, example would be uh, the statement like uh, all all Christians are liars. Said one Christian, and then you say, and then you ask the question, what he said it was it was it a true or was it a lie? And it creates a paradox because if a liar says I'm lying, mm -hmm. then you know you'd be like, okay, maybe. Well, if I'm lying, that means I'm not lying. But if I'm not lying, but I said I'm lying, this means I'm lying. Mm -hmm. So a machine cannot distinguish that. A machine actually gets stuck into an infinite loop trying to process because all it can see is the inputs that are given to it, right? But we as humans re recognize the nonsensicality of the statement. We say, we can say this question cannot be answered uh, with using the, the rules of linguistics because it does not make sense. 
but we can kind of view it from the outside. Machine cannot. Machine's world is the language. That's what it gave it, right? So this means it implies that humans have another, another signal system, which is the first signal system, call it intuition or call it the ability to grasp things outside of what they actually are. Machines cannot do that. And we can actually, we are, we are good at spotting these paradoxes and we can avoid them. Machines cannot, they're stuck, right? So imagine the entire economy, or at least most of it being run by this thing, which entirely operates on these formal rules. And then these paradoxes pop up, you know, everywhere. They're just inherent in the system. And the system periodically grinds to a halt. God forbid something breaks, many people die, maybe a plane crashes or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then it's just inherent in that system. And they basically the pushes to replace the economy, the human input in the economy, as imperfect as an and, and as unreliable as it is. They're saying we can make the economy run much more smoothly if we put it under the, the you know the, the 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 control of a AI of a computer. Yeah, it will run smoothly until it doesn't, and then everything will collapse. Right. Well, which one is more preferable? Uh, you know, a bunch of you know uh, un maybe unreliable but still manageable and progressive humans. Progressive meaning they can add new knowledge, not the political version of progressive, or something that you know things seem to run perfectly smoothly until not only they don't, but the entirety collapses and nobody knows why. I think most people will choose the first one, meaning humans being involved and not and not the computer being in charge. Um, so yeah, wow. that's yeah. Those are the <laughs> those are the social changes that I'm currently seeing right now and. I think we're we're in for a very interesting 2023. I think <laughs> Both you're right. Politically and health wise. I think you're right. And I'm I'm sitting here amazed because obviously you have a degree in IT <laughs> when yeah. you're talking about these things. But to shift gears, we're gonna talk about why I don't know how you don't have a degree in medicine and biochemistry because you have such a knack for that with these supplements. And as any of you listening have figured out, this is uh Georgie Dinkoff who has joined me for part two of our explain our explanations of his wonderful Idea Labs products because he has literally developed supplements that could fit any realm of someone dealing with a health condition or just looking to improve their health. I mean, I don't really think there's anything on your website that you're missing when I look at it because you've kind of thought of everything. So in, in response to all of the people asking questions about your products, that's what we're discussing today is how these products can help certain conditions that people are dealing with, what they were designed for, because you know, you might mention why there's not a lot of data when people go to Idea Labs for them to say, you know, here's, for example, Tyromax, but it says nothing, not what it is, yeah. not what it does or anything. So you might mention that, but welcome back on, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me again. Hopefully yeah. we're, we'll make it interesting for your listeners. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we'll start with some rapid fire of the products of just the best brief synopsis you can give for what they were designed for. And also just before that, like I said, the question that you might want to pose or the answer you might want to give is like, why no data on the website? Why do they have to dig for what these um, ingredients are? So uh, in one, I mean, one sentence, all of these supplements, every single one of them, the ultimate goal is to improve the synthesis of energy yes. from the food that we're ingesting. Um, and if, if and there are multiple like sort of like th there's a pathway from energy to from food to energy that involves maybe about 30 steps and there are, and every single one of these steps can somehow malfunction or be you know uh, in, uh, inhibited by something in our body either due to stress or like poor diet or a drug that we're taking a prescription drug um, or you know a pollutant from the environment so the goal really of these supplements as a whole is to remove as many of these roadblocks as possible mm -hmm. to make the conversion of food into energy as efficient as possible. And the reason is that 
uh, now it's an it's kind of like an old theory, but it's always been running kind of like second a runner up to the main theory, which has been genetics. Uh, the the runner up has always been it's not that the genes that control the body; it's the other way around. It's the energy that produce that basically controls not only how much energy we feel like we have, which of course anybody can immediately identify. Would say like, yeah, obviously if I'm feeling tired means I'm not producing sufficient energy, but it looks like the production of energy is also required for the maintenance of our body structure. Unlike a car, where I often give this, this analogy, I think it's, it's a decent one. Uh, you know, the car analogy is that's how medicine views your body. They're saying, okay, um, you know, the, the kind of gas you put in your car and how well your engine works, it's not going to determine whether you get a flat tire, uh, your, your windshield will break, like, the, I don't know, you get a dent on the door, right? Um, you know, something, something else mechanically breaks in the car. These two things are completely separate. In other words, function and structure in the view of medicine uh, in the body are completely separate. And if there is any connection, usually it's from structure to function. In other words, uh, if you're experiencing pain somewhere, we're going to do the best that we can to view if there's any structural reason for that. Maybe you have a broken bone. Maybe you have a damaged nerve. Maybe there's infection there, right? Maybe, God forbid, there's a tumor. But whatever it is, we're going to apply our structural tools, such as, uh, I don't know, radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, um, you know, maybe like mend the broken bone somehow. But at the end of the day is that we're going to try to fix the structural problem, hoping that the functional, which is the pain or some kind of other, you know, movement disorder will go away. And if it doesn't, if we can't find a structural problem, we're going to call you, we're going to say that your problem is functional and we're going to manage the symptoms because we don't know what the cause is. Medicine is kind of stumped. When they see, when they see a problem that, and obviously the patient is arriving, they have a problem, some kind of a problem, pain or other dysfunction, and then medicine will do everything it can to discover the structural problem. And if they cannot discover a structural problem, they're at a loss. They say, okay, you have an idiopathic disease. Okay, we don't know what the cause is, right? So what we're going to do is going to manage your symptoms, which whether it's pain or discomfort or, I don't know, like a rash or something. We have these drugs that will manage the symptoms, but we're going to tell you from the beginning, we're not curing it because we don't know what the root cause is, right? Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's it's kind of okay to have a, a few conditions where you don't know what the cause is because is, they're, too, they're too new, right? Maybe they just started appearing. So medicine takes some time to figure it out. Unfortunately, over the last 100 years, what has happened is that medicine has shifted from a balance of about, I don't know, 90% fixable things and 10% unfixable to now virtually everything is unfixable. They, they don't know the cause of anything, with, with certainty. So medicine has de devolved into this, this essentially industry of managing your symptoms. That's all they do. Uh, and in fact, most doctors are, are, will, will not hide this from you. They will say that that's what we do. I mean, uh, cancer, they say it causes genetic. Well, turns out that it's not. And in fact, recently, even medicine has started to admit that it isn't. But to this day, because there's still the dogma of cancer being genetic disease, and we don't know what gene is causing the cancer, since we don't know that we're going to manage your symptoms. And what are the symptoms? The tumor, we're going to cut it out or we're going to burn it with radiation or chemotherapy and hope that, you know, it, it somehow you'll be cured. More often than not, you're not cured, right? In fact, sometimes tumors come back even more aggressive. Um, and at the end of the day, this is what really we're, what we're doing. We're addressing the functional aspect of it. And we're also trying to portray to kind of like uh, 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 drive it into people's minds that you cannot separate structure from function. As far as the cellular machinery, which is what our bodies are, is concerned, these two things are inseparable. In other words, if you have a functional problem, which is the um, suboptimal production of energy, which is the most important aspect of your cellular really existence, then eventually it will manifest into a structural problem as well. In other words, if you if something is interfering with your energy production, 
over time, it will lead to an actual structural disease such as diabetes, cancer, heart disease, neurological disease, psychiatric disease, all of these things can be actually ultimately traced back to the insufficient production of energy. So we really were trying to release products that address the energetic aspect of it. But since there's more than one step through which basically this pathway of conversion of energy of food to energy happens, uh, these products act on, you know, one or more different steps, right? Uh, sometimes they overlap, but we try to address as many of those different potential roadblocks as possible. Um, and with the ultimate goal being to improve the production of energy, which should resolve both your functional and your structural problems. Now, if the functional problem, if the energetic deficiency has been there for a while, it may take a while to resolve the structural problem because it builds up, right? Uh, let's say if you have chronic inflammation, which is an entirely functional problem, over time, it leads to something called a fibrosis um, in your in your soft tissues. And that's a structural problem. Now, medicine kept claiming for a long time that fibrosis, in other words, the structural problem is irreversible. Once it happens, the only thing you can do is that you, you can actually cut out that scar tissue, which is what fibrosis is, mm-hmm. um, and then that's it. But you cannot, revo- cannot revert it back to normal tissue. Turns out that you can, uh, and several of our products address this aspect. But it turns out that, again, it's an, it's an energetic problem. Uh, and if you improve the production of energy over time, the fibrotic tissue can revert back to normal. Same with cancerous tissue. Same with, uh, you know, systemic things like diabetes type 2, right? Or Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease. All of these things, there is extensive amounts of evidence. It has been there for at least 100 years. Uh, like I said, this tier has always been runner-up to the mainstream, the, the, the champion one, the, the genetic dogma. So the runner-up theory has always said, Everything that you have as a problem health-wise is ultimately due to the insufficient production of energy. Anything you can do to speed up that production of energy, to improve its uh, the actual pathway, to remove the roadblocks, it results in improved systemic health. And even though you, you may think that some problems are localized, such as, I don't know, fibrosis in the heart or, you know, soft somewhere in the muscle, uh, it's actually the manifestation of systemic energetic deficiency. So you shouldn't be treating the problem locally. You can try to do, to do that. But if, if it's there, it means systemically the body is not functioning as well as it should. So you should be doing everything possible to Im- improve the systemic production of energy. And that's what these products do. And they're all pro-energetic, but they just you know act on a dif- different you know parts of the of this chain, which is from food to energy. Okay, cool. Yeah. If I'm going to shout out one of them, maybe you're going to tell me something, what it is, and then some things that it works sure. for. Something sure. like Camphocell. Yep. So Camphocell is a combination of two things, camphoric acid and something called phenyl salicylate, which mm-hmm. is closely related to aspirin. Um, and believe it or not, the camphoric acid was approved by the FDA uh, very early in the 20th century, I think 1902 or 1905, was improved as an intestinal antiseptic. In other words, as a compound that sterilizes the intestine. Um, And a big portion of the bioenergetic theory says that a lot of the energetic problems that we experience come from the constant production of something called endotoxin in our GI gastrointestinal tract. And this endotoxin is is basically a result of the bacteria that's colonized our intestine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when we eat food that is not easily digested, yeah, if whatever is not digested and absorbed eventually gets to the large intestine and there's a ton of bacteria there, outnumbering our cells in a, in a ratio of, I think, at least 10 to 1. Imagine 10 little versions of you cramped up, like that's how much biomass is cramped up in your column. 
Mm-hmm. And that those 10 little versions of you in the bacterial shape and form start devouring this food that was not properly digested. And then it increases the turnover of this bacterial colony. In other words, older bacteria will die, newer bacteria will form. The older bacteria that die, some of, some of the bacteria, the so-called gram-negative bacteria, they have in their outer layer this thing called lipopolysaccharide, very long name, but also known as endotoxin. In other words, right. a toxin that's internal to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happens is that every time we eat poorly digestible foods, which of, of, the, of those are plenty around us, um, we, incre- we increase the production of endotoxin in our intestine. Now, while the endotoxin stays in the intestine, it's, still, it's kind of okay. Still not, not beneficial, but it's under control. However, with age, there's this thing called the gut barrier. Uh, in other words, the intestine selectively allows certain things inside of the bloodstream while keeping others out. But this barrier breaks down or is greatly compromised. Um, and then this endotoxin starts to get into the bloodstream. Once it enters in the bloodstream, it acts as if the bacteria, if, as if the body is under some kind of a chronic bacterial infection. It activates the same mechanisms and it causes a chronic systemic inflammatory reaction. Anything that increases inflammation will actually result in a drastic decline of your production of energy from food. It also increases, it activates the stress system, uh, including the hormone cortisol, because cortisol has an anti-inflammatory effect. And when you're under chronic inflammation, which is what the endotoxin will cause, the body says, oh, I need to keep inflammation down. I'm going to raise cortisol. Well, cortisol also suppresses your energy production uh, because it it thinks right now you need the resources for other things, such as fighting the inflammation, mm-hmm. fighting the infection. It shreds your muscles, shreds your bones, shreds your skin. It basically can can, can completely consume you uh, because that's the that's the role of cortisol is to actually get energy resources as quickly as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. And if there's no food around, then the cortisol will get them from from your tissues. You can convert your own tissue into energy, and cortisol is the main mediator of that. So that doesn't sound like very good, right? You don't want to be consuming yourself for energy. So what happens is that so. The long story here is that you want to keep endotoxin levels as low as possible because then just as the name says, endotoxin is not something that's good for us. It's an internal endo, internal toxin. Okay, well, how, how do we do that? Well, uh, you do it by keeping the uh, bacterial count in your large intestine in check. In other words, keeping it as low as possible. Uh, antibiotics can do that, right? But antibiotics has, have a lot of side effects. They're prescription drugs, right? Um, many of them can sometimes really kill like disproportionately one member of the bacterial family while other will kind of like opportunistically take up its space. Some of them are more pathological than others. You may end up kind of like killing some of the bacteria that's not as bad, but and then allowing like a really pathological one to pop up. So the best way is if there was something that can actually uh, systemically keep the bacterial population low and FDA realized, FDA realized in early 20th century that this something, one, of the, one such thing, is camphoric acid. It has a broad spectrum antibacterial and antifungal effect. A lot of people struggle with candida, with candida overgrowth as well. Mm. And so that's what we put as one of the ingredients in the product, camphoric acid. Mm. The second one, phenyl salicylate, is also uh, known by the FDA. And I don't know if it's approved or not, but there are many studies from the early 20th century citing it that it, it, it works similarly to camphoric acid and that the two have synergistic effect. So camphosal is basically your over-the-counter, um, uh, I don't want to call it, I, I'm not allowed to call it equivalent, is your over-the-counter version of an antibiotic that is targeting per- predominantly your gastrointestinal tract. Why? Because these two ingredients, they don't absorb. They don't go into your bloodstream like a vitamin. They actually stay in your GI tract 
And that's what allows them, by passing through it, to kind of decimate a lot of these pathological species that are naturally present in your gastrointestinal tract, whether they're bacteria, viruses, they have antiviral effect as well, uh, or, or fungal species such as candida. So that's what Camphosol is, is a broad spectrum uh, intestinal antiseptic, which is what the FDI originally called it. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so to summarize, then gut infections, people with gut infections yeah. would benefit, candida yeah. would benefit, um, any sort of colitis maybe, if they're yep. having Crohn's or colitis yep. might benefit yep. from that yep. too. And enteroviruses, enteroviruses as well, very common on the, if you go to, if you go on the cruise, uh, whenever you get like a large gathering of people that are eating from the same food sources, you, mm. you tend to get this like outbreak of enterovirus, sure, which is usually sure. gives you like uh, uh, abdominal cramps and diarrhea and vomiting that's caused by the virus. The camphocel, potocamphoric acid, and the phenylsalicylate have no antiviral effects. And parasites? Um, that hasn't been studied. I, I, I've several people asked me this question. But I think the parasites, because they're multicellular organisms and they tend to be, have like a very well-defined body, like a worm, for example, right? The, I think the question becomes like how much of the camphosal with the worm ingest while it's passing through the intestine. Okay. Uh, I suspect that if it's ingests a significant amount of it, will probably have antiparasitic effect. But the ones, if you look at most of the antiparasitic drugs, they kind of, they don't rely on the parasite ingestion. They, 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 they paralyze the, the worm. So it can actually release its hooks from your intestine and then it can basically excrete it. Uh, few of them rely on, on somehow poisoning the parasite. So camphoric acid probably will work as will the phenylsalicylate if the worm ingests it. Whether that happens and to what degree, it hasn't been studied. But if it does happen, then it should have an antiparasitic effect as well. Awesome. Okay, that's great for a lot of people because there's a lot of gut issues going on. So my next one is diamond. Mm -hmm. So oh, diamond is actually, it's actually a diamond. If you look diamond. at the, that's the French name for diamonds. Um, uh, yeah, it's the same. It's basically diamond. I could have called it diamond, but it's a too generic of a name. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to put a little French twist. So to give, to make it sound like it's a product diamond. name, but diamond, yeah, diamond, but it's actually <laughs> a, the regular French word for diamond. Okay. And it's the simplest diamondoid in nature. Uh, it has a very rigid crystal structure. Uh, of 10 carbon atoms, but you are effectively just in diamonds, uh, very small, tiny little diamonds when you're using uh, diamond or applying it to your skin. Um, and it's very structurally, very closely related to camphor. In, in fact, it has the exact same scent. Um, both camphor and diamond are indistinguishable when you, when you smell them. They look the same. They're these white crystalline substance. And if you look at the chemical structure, it's very similar. So almost anything that camphor has been traditionally used for uh, Diamond can, can be used as well. Uh, there are several antiviral drugs based on the um, the diamond structure. In English, it's called adamantane. Um, basically, adamantane is the common is the chemical chemically accepted name of the ingredient that's in diamond. Um, and basically, adamantane derivatives um, are have a very wide application in medicine. Uh, very two very famous uh, antiviral drugs, perhaps two of the first commercial. Um, antiviral drugs were amantadine and remantadine, which of the amantadine just kind of tells you that they have a adamantane inside. Um, and basically, if you look at the structure, both drugs are essentially the molecule that is in diamond, but with only one extra, either a methyl or amino group. So they're essentially the same molecule as adamantane. Adamantane is the base. So we took the base on which all other adamantane drugs are based on, and we uh, dissolve it in vitamin E, and that's what the product was. 
Um, and it, there's some evidence that the adamantane structure, the core structure, uh, has some very uh, structurally supportive effects on the cell. So it acts like a, almost like the saturated fats uh, that are known to stabilize the cell, to make the cell less hydrophilic. And when you make the cell less hydrophilic, you prevent the cell from absorbing, just like the intestine. You want to be there to be a very strong wall between the, the between the cell, the internals of the cell, and the outside world. Because guess what? Many toxins that float around in the blood, uh, viruses, bacteria, whatnot. The cell should be selectively permeable and should have sufficient energetic resources to prevent bad things from getting inside. Uh, multiple studies have shown that when cells become more hydrophilic, more water-loving, they absorb more toxins from the environment. And conversely, when they become more hydrophobic, in other words, less likely to like water, then they become much more resistant to all kinds of toxins and disease and stresses. And the way to make them more hydrophobic is to give them more saturated fatty acid molecules so you can eat saturated fat. Or, is, uh, it, as it turns out, the adamantane molecule is extremely good at achieving the same effects, but in much lower concentrations. So instead of eating, let's say, like a tablespoon of butter, which a lot of people will bulk at because they think it's going to raise their cholesterol, make them fat or both, right? <laughs> you take a tiny amount of the adamantane, and it seems to have the same stabilizing effects on the cell um, and its structure and its permeability, but without the calories. So that really was the goal. It's kind of like a systemic uh, cellular support product uh, without without any like uh, specific targets, except possibly its antiviral effects, which have now been confirmed. And most of the, you know, the, the new uh, antiviral drugs in development seem to have the adamantane core in them. So, so yeah, so the systemic structural support supplement with, you know, proven antiviral effects. I'm thinking about somebody like with a mass cell reaction or, and their system has been just overloaded with toxins for so long that something like that would be really good at like rebuilding their cells. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Several of these drugs have been shown because of the adamantane core to prevent the, the entry of histamine in the cell. And that's a very powerful inflammatory mediator responsible for many of the intolerant food intolerances and whatnot and the allergies. Uh, it prevents the entry of serotonin into the system. And in fact, one of the, um, um, uh, Alzheimer's drugs and one of the Parkinson drugs where serotonin is involved in both are actually shown to have an anti-serotonin effect. It's believed to be due to the adamantane core. Um, so you're preventing the entry of, in, again, some, uh, in order for these things to cause havoc in the cell, they have to enter the cell. And the histamine, the serotonin, glutamate, all of these chemical mediators that float around, uh, in, around the body through the blood, right, in the blood, you prevent their entry to a large degree into the cell by supplying with adamantane. Um, so yeah, you're gonna get a lot of uh, you know reduction in systemic inflammatory reactions, many of which are due to chronic histamine overload. Okay, cool. Okay, so we've got still a lot of products to go through, and so maybe just an idea of what it is, and then also what it, what conditions it could be used for. Like for example, our next one is lisuride. Lyseride, yeah. Yes. So lyseride is a, a so-called ergot derivative, uh, and is structurally very similar to the chemical LSD, the illegal chemical. Okay. But the illegal chemical was the basis of the creation of many pro-dopamine slash anti-serotonin drugs. Bromocryptine is a very famous one, mm -hmm. one of the first approved drugs for Parkinson's disease, which is considered to be due to uh, deficiency of dopamine. Uh, but lately, now they found out it's actually excess of serotonin that is much more to blame. So yes, dopamine is deficient, but serotonin is the high serotonin that's causing the deficiency of dopamine. So uh, these ergot derivatives have been shown very early on. 
That, in fact, that's how the LSD started. The, uh, the LSD molecule started its entry into the uh, you know social use and medical uses that they discovered that it has a powerful anti-serotonin effect, really low doses. Um, and then they decided, okay, so LSD is now a controlled chemical. What can we do that acts like LSD, but without the hallucinations? Because that's really what got the molecule banned. But it has all the other beneficial effects. So they, they, they created several of these derivatives of LSD. One of them is bromocryptine, approved drug for Parkinson's disease, and type 2 diabetes, interestingly, in the United States. Um, Cabergoline, another very similar molecule to bromocryptine, uh, but with very nasty side effects of causing fi uh, fibrosis in the heart, liver, and lungs. Uh, Metergoline, uh, which we also sell, another ergot derivative, uh, a non-selective serotonin antagonist. Mm -hmm. And then lizarite, lizarite, uh, which is basically um, very similar to LSD, but without the hallucination effect. So very powerful anti-serotonin and pro-dopamine chemical. And it was studied, uh, it's, it's currently not, not scheduled chemical, it's not controlled, it's available over the counter, mm -hmm. or at least without prescription. Um, and basically was studied as a, uh, they wanted to develop a transdermal patch for treating Parkinson's disease, um, but they needed a drug that has a very long half-life. And they came up with Lizarate. Uh, so Lizarate is basically a drug that has anti-serotonin, pro-dopamine effects, and uh, uh, interestingly, in contrast to bromocryptine and cabergolin, it has anti-fibrotic effects versus bromocryptine and cabergolin being pro-fibrotic, um, and basically, recently, the company Pfizer has taken Lizarate, the Lizarate molecule, did a slight change, uh, but the name statement almost the same. They created something called Tergorate, uh, and Tergorate is tra trans dihydrolizarate, so very similar to Lizarate, only one atom change. And now they're studying in this molecule for reversing all kinds of fibrotic conditions that uh, medicine to this day uh, not only claim the incurable, they also, they're known to be lethal, like pulmonary fibrosis, cardiac fibrosis, heart failure, right? Uh, liver fibrosis, also known as cirrhosis, uh, even liver cancer. All of these conditions, uh, Pfizer now says, based on its clinical trials that so far are going well and they haven't been stopped, that it looks like the ter this tergoride, which is just a slightly changed lizard, is going to be able to reverse, not only not prevent, not just treat, but reverse. So really, that's what lizard does. It's an anti-serotonin pro-dopamine chemical with all of the associated benefits. In other words, whenever you have inflammation and or fibrosis and or problems with insulin resistance, uh, serotonin is involved. That's why bromocryptine is approved for type 2 diabetes. Whenever you have other problems like a heart disease, like chronic heart disease, or like a Parkinson's disease, or Alzheimer's disease, serotonin is also involved. Uh, that's why several of these drugs are also approved for the Parkinson and uh, Alzheimer's disease. So lizard is all of these things, but it's not by prescription, right? And key difference, unlike some of the other air derivatives, it's actually anti-fibrotic. That's why Pfizer picked that specific molecule to develop their anti-fibrotic drug based on. Uh, and they call it tergorate. But it's basically lizard. It's the, it's the exact same molecule, the exact same functions, and they even accepted it on their, on their brochure. If you read the pharmacological profile uh, that they've described for tergorate, it's identical to the one for lizard. Hmm. Okay, so if someone has, you know, all the symptoms, the classic symptoms of high serotonin or even serotonin syndrome, this would be something they would want to implement. And if maybe even Parkinson's um, is on their radar as it's in their gene line, maybe they want yep. to take it just as preventative. Sure, sure. Yeah. I don't see a problem as long as the doctor is okay with it. I mean, basically, yeah. mention it to your doctor. More often than not, the doctor will look at the molecule. They have a, their own database. They will enter the name. 
you immediately tell them what class of drug it belongs to, what are the similar drugs. And when they see that, let's say, bromocryptine is approved for Parkinson, they'll say, oh, okay, that's almost the same thing. So let's go with that. Cool. Okay, let's move into the tyros, the tyromax, the tyronine, the tyromix. What are the differences and what are they for and what, what conditions can they help with? So they're all, they're all thyroid products, right? Uh, as as kind of like suggested by the name, the Tyromax is a, a desiccated natural thyroid gland, mm-hmm. uh, bovine. We usually get the bovine version of it. Um, and it's basically ground into very fine powder, right? Um, and then we emulsify it with some long chain saturated fatty acids and some vitamin E, some mixed to cough rolls. Mm-hmm. And we create this emulsion and it's basically like a liquid natural uh, desiccated products, just Arma thyroid is very famous. Yeah. Uh, WP thyroid is not a famous one. So any, any person taking natural desiccated thyroid or NDTs, it's commonly abbreviated, uh, Tyromax is basically the same as that. Um, and basically, the if you look at the thyroid gland, it contains a mixture of the thyroid hormones T4, T3, uh, T2, and T1, actually, because there's, you know, uh, several of them. Uh, and the ratio of T4 to T3 in the actual thyroid gland is usually about four to one, up to five to one. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, so so we're just releasing Tyromax and branding it as a natural desiccated thyroid equivalent product. So if you're taking Arma thyroid, you can probably be using if you're using the same dosages uh, converted to Tyromax, you should be able to replace with Arma with that. And then Tyromix and Tyronine are basically the synthetic T4 and T3, which is in Tyromix. That's why it's Tyromix, the two uh, thyroid hormones. Combined, but they in a ratio of two to one. Um, and basically, uh, several studies have shown that in people who are severely hypothyroid, very old, or very sick, um, the ratio of four to one or even five to one is that it's naturally present in the thyroid gland is actually not, not very beneficial because uh, it creates a relative excess of T4. And T4, when the body perceives that it's in excess and it cannot be converted quickly enough into T3 being the precursor to T3, mm-hmm. that the body converts T4 into something called reverse T3, which is a very nasty hormone. No it, has like a, it has an anti-thyroid effect. It can make you even more hypothyroid. So we, we've had situations, and people have been describing this for decades, where somebody who is very sick is taking natural desiccated thyroid, and they're getting worse. They're getting uh, feeling colder, right? Uh, their heart rate is going lower. They're having trouble sleeping and all these things. And that is because they're converting, there's too much T4 into their product and mm-hmm. they're converting a lot of it into reverse T3. When the ratio is lowered, lower than four to one, which is as it is in Tyromix, the ratio is two to one, these things don't seem to be happening. In other words, uh, you're getting the benefits of T3 and because the ratio of T4 to T3 is not that high, that T4 that you're getting from Tyromix also tends to get converted into T3. Uh, and then Tyronine is only a pure T3 product Mm-hmm. Uh, because some people feel the need to use it. They're mm-hmm. so hypothyroid that basically nothing but T3 gets their temperatures and, yeah. and heart rate up and, and you know improves digestion or sleep or mood and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, you, T3 is typically reserved for very severe cases of hypothyroidism in regular clinical medicine, allopathic medicine. Uh, only when people are so hypothyroid, they, they're at a risk of something called myxidemic coma. In other words, you can be so hypothyroid, you can go into a coma and you can get your basically face and extremities to to, to bulge up, to get, become to become edema, to, uh, to to have edema in the extremities. And that's why it's called mixed edema coma, right? So it's coma with like swelling of the extremities. That's severe hypothyroidism. That's what it does. And the treatment for that is T3. I don't know of any person, at least I haven't been emailed by any person who, is, who, has, who has had that, 
But I have been emailed by people who said that no combination of T4 and T3 works for them. Only T3, pure T3 actually uh, makes them feel normal. Yeah. And I was going to attest to that too. I've had multiple clients that have done really well in the Tyronine. So I advocate for those hugely. Um, also, there's a lot of research coming out. And I don't know if you've like been playing around with just a T2 product because you can get that over the counter, but I keep seeing research new stuff. Like they're really studying T2 and the benefits of even for fat loss without the jitters or the heart racing palpitations of T3. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen the research, but I think a lot of the a lot of the benefits actually due to back conversion of T2 into T3, which oh, can happen. Okay. Uh, so so I don't know how much of that of that beneficial effect, which I believe is there, is actually due to the T to the T2 molecule itself. Because I've seen research with other T2 mo- derivatives which cannot be converted back to T3, and those molecules don't have the beneficial effect. So this kind of suggests that it's the it's the pure T2 used, chances are that a good portion of its uh uh, benefits is through probably because it's a slower conversion into T3 rather than taking T3 directly, which makes you jittery because it's very difficult to nail down the exact dosage that everybody needs. So probably by taking T2, it's like you're taking T4, but without the risk of converting into reverse T3, right? Okay. Yeah. So T2 is also a kind of like a backwards precursor to T3, but it doesn't have the potential to make you more hypothyroid, which is what would happen if you take a high doses of T4. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, if you ever come up with T2 product, I'd love to test that out too, because there's a lot of research and that looks like fun. Okay. Um, next one is quinine. And then you also have one that's quinone. What yes. are the differences in those? Oh, very, di- very different products. Very different. The, the yeah. quinine okay. is just a quinine that's typically found in your tonic water. Yes. Uh, it's extracted from the bark of something called the cinchona tree. I think it's okay. cinchona. C-I-N-C-H-O-N-A. Okay. Uh, it's it's uh, naturally found in like a southern portion of the United States and, and Latin America. Uh, and basically it's been known for a very long time to treat, um, you know, fevers, uh, inflammatory diseases, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes even infectious diseases. Uh, it's obviously most well known for treating malaria. Um, and uh, there is a book i'm blanking on the name of basically like a historian who made the argument that the reason the british were able to colonize a good portion of the world especially india and like uh, other uh, southeast asian countries is because they were drinking a lot of tonic water with gin <laughs> maybe that's you know i don't know if the gin would c- contribute anything but the tonic water back in the day contained a much higher amount of quinine than it does now now it's limited by law in most countries to con- to basically to be no more than 100 milligrams per liter of liquid um, which gives you a bit of a, a tight, like a hint of bitterness, but not nearly what the real tonic water was back in the day, which mm-hmm. had amounts of 300 to 500 milligrams per liter of quinine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quinine is an interesting molecule, uh, already proven to you know treat malaria, which the really the biggest threat to the to the conquering Western forces, imperialistic forces, was the local infectious disease to which they had no immunity, right? Uh, and really, to infections such as malaria, you cannot really develop an immunity. It's a parasite which you get infected to mm-hmm. when a mosquito, specific mosquito bites you. Uh, so they would have been decimated because the locals knew how to treat themselves, but the British didn't. If it wasn't for the quinine, when they discovered that the quinine can treat malaria and often prevent it, uh, that allowed uh, basically the British to massively expand their military and conquering campaigns and conquer a much uh, bigger territory. So quinine may be the you know the very core of the British Empire. <laughs> it would not have been what it what it became if it wasn't for quinine. 
Uh, it has also anti-serotonin effects. Seems to block mostly the 5-HT3 receptors, uh, which are mostly expressed in your gastrointestinal tract. So if you have any kind of digestive issues, uh, uh, quinine may be able to help. Uh, coincidentally or not, tonic water and in general bitter tinctures, especially the famous Swedish bitter, are commonly used as as digestive uh, enhancers. Um, and uh, you know, it's they don't know yet whether it's the actual just a bitter taste stimulating digestion in a specific way. But it's known that these bitter herbs, many of which contain quinine, um, help improve digestion. So, and they can they can regulate it both ways. So if you have constipation, they can help to relieve it, or if you have diarrhea, they can help to relieve it. Uh, and quinine seems to have a effects and structurally similar to something to a drug anti-serotonin drug called ondansetron, mm-hmm. which is currently prescribed for nausea and for also now off-label for treating several gastrointestinal problems such as irritable bowel syndrome, mostly with the with the diarrhea type, because there are two types, diarrhea and constipation. Mm-hmm. The good thing about quinine is it seems to be able to help with both. So if you have both the irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea or constipation, it seems that quinine may be able to help with either one. Awesome. Okay. And then the quinone, the reason why I brought them up together is because when people go look for these, I want to, them to see there's they two products similar. that kind of yeah. sound similar, but they're yeah. different. So go ahead. So quinone, quinone spelled with a K is actually yes. like a bastardized version of the word quinone spelled with a Q. And a quinone is just a type of molecule that is capable of accepting electrons. The most famous example of a quinone and the one that is probably most, most useful to our bodies is coenzyme Q10. And the reason it's uh, the name is Q10 is because it's a quinone molecule with an isoprenoid chain that is 10 carbon atoms long. So it's a it's actually it's it's a it's a it's Q10 really is the molecule, but it because it has a role as a coenzyme, they call it coenzyme Q10. So the vitamin K family of molecules are also quinones, spelt with a Q. Mm. And so I wanted to release a product that basically kind of played on you know on on both the fact that it's a quinone, but it's also of the vitamin K family. So it really that's what it is. It's a quinone. It's a vitamin K. But also I wanted people to realize that vitamin K because if you talk to a medical practitioner, they'll tell you that vitamin K has only one role, and that is coagulation. That's where its name comes from. From the German uh, letter of the German word coagulation, which is spelled in German with a K. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why vitamin K was called vitamin K because it was thought to be the main factor responsible for coagulation. To this day, that's the reason they're giving it to newborns in the hospital. If you have a baby, they're going to offer, or often not even offer, but like kind of do it behind your back. They'll inject the baby with vitamin K1 uh, to prevent any kind of like bleeding complications, which apparently are now commonplace in newborns. They weren't back in the day, but now they are. So they injected him with vitamin K to prevent the, you know, the bleeding uh, uh, complications. Mm-hmm. But uh, not many doctors know or care to look at, but the vitamin K is also a quinone molecule. In other words, it's also electron accepting, electron withdrawing. And mm-hmm. why does that matter? Well, it turns out that most of the problems that we have, basically the energetic problems that we have, stem from, uh, like I said, blockade or inhibition of one or more of these steps on the chain of traveling electrons, literally, from food to oxygen, and that's the process to which we make energy. So it's, so really, we are an internal combustion engine, but instead of one step, which is the ignition of the fuel in the engine, right, directly mixing with oxygen, uh, we extract the electrons from food, so food is our fuel, but instead of directly binding with oxygen, it actually undergoes maybe 30 more steps, right? 
But it's, and the quinones, because the electrons can sometimes get stuck by on one, at one or more of those steps, the uh, quinones can serve as like a emergency replacement of oxygen. It can go and you know extract the stuck electrons at step three or step five or step 27, right? Uh, where, which oxygen cannot do. Oxygen, the way, we're, the way we're made to use it in our cells, has very specific effects, and it's at the very end of this chain of electron flow where it accepts the electrons, and then that's the final step after which the, the conversion of food into energy, carbon dioxide, and water is full. Uh, that's really the only place where oxygen has its role. And, uh, but like I said, there are 30 other steps you know, preceding that, and if any of those steps are blocked, then the quinone molecules can kind of substitute for oxygen, go and take those electrons and remove them and allow basically the other electrons that are behind them to keep flowing. So in other words, quinone molecules help to speed up our metabolism. So whether you take vitamin uh, vitamin K or coenzyme Q10 or methylene blue, which is another type of quinone, also mm-hmm. electron withdrawal molecule, mm-hmm. or some of the antibiotics, such as the tetracycline antibiotics, they're also quinone molecules. Any of these molecules, that, when you take them, they have the effect of being prometabolic. They speed up your metabolism. Okay. Uh, and vitamin K has recently been gaining a lot of interest from medical field because it's they found out that um, you know uh, it has uh, multiple functions which vastly uh, uh, surpass its known role as a coagulation factor. Uh, it's now being studied as a both preventive and treatment of uh, liver cancer. In fact, rumor is it will soon be approved for that in the United States by the FDA. It's also there are multiple clinical trials being run with it now uh, for various blood cancers, lymphomas, leukemias. Um, you know, mild, other mild dysplastic syndromes, um, and it's present, presenting very good evidence there. Um, and medicine is kind of is, is confused, saying like, well, we don't know what its mechanism of action is. We do. Uh, the metabolic theory says anything that helps to improve your metabolism will improve health, right? And the cancers are kind of like the extreme example of deranged metabolism. Uh, there is basically zero passage of the electrons from food to oxygen, they're stuck somewhere and building up to the point of the body creating tumor using those electrons as the building material. So by using the quinones, you're removing those electrons and you're preventing the tumor to form. In fact, if you use a sufficient dosage of them, you can reverse already existing tumors or you can basically prevent this this block at the different steps of the metabolic process from even forming. So it's great as a preventative and it's great one after a problem is already there. But of course, it's better to not have a problem to start with, so it's good to use as a preventive measure. And human studies have shown that as little as one milligram a day, which is like less than one drop of our product, is is good enough for bone health. For general cancer prevention, about five milligrams a day are needed, which is like two and a half drops from our product. Um, And even at those dosages, the bottle is going to last you a very long time. I mean, uh, each bottle is like 750 drops, so... If you're using two drops daily, you're looking at what, uh, 375. So it's kind of last you a year, uh, yeah. just one bottle. Okay. So I'm hearing also probably good for preventing oxidative stress. Like if somebody yes. wanting to prevent oxidative stress. Okay, yes. great. All right. Um, Osteoporosis, it's actually, it's an, it's an approved drug, prescription drug in many Asian countries, most notably Japan, for both preventing and treating osteoporosis. Nice. Um, it's not recognized like that in the Western world, but you know, 700 million people in Asia trust their bone health on, onto vitamin K and they treat it as a drug. I think we'll be wise to listen. 
Nice. Okay. Now I want to shift gears. We haven't hit all the products yet, but what if we did some, um, based on some questions that we got, but also stuff that I just kind of put together is what I'm seeing in practice is the biggest issues that are out there right now is a product that gets rid of PUFAs out of the body. What would that look like? Uh, Chocovit, which is our vitamin E product combined right. with uh, something called mitolipin. Okay. Uh, and basically the Tocovit contains vitamin E, which is good at preventing, first of all, preventing the PUFA that we already store from oxid from peroxidizing and creating these toxic byproducts that are, many of them are carcinogenic, directly carcinogenic. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when you're eating PUFA and you're consuming a sufficient amount of vitamin E, uh, there is some evidence, preliminary evidence that vitamin E may interfere with the absorption of PUFA from the intestine. Um, also, there is something called in, in the vitamin E because it's extracted from wheat germ oil. Yeah. There is something in the product called polycosinols. And the polycosinols, um, which are very long-chain saturated fatty alcohols, mm-hmm. uh, multiple studies, human studies have shown that they can decrease drastically oxidative stress, which is mostly due to PUFA, right? And also uh, prevent and potentially even reverse cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the preventing thing is vitamin E is also known to do it. Aspirin is known to do it. But the reversal of it is one of the very few substances that have been demonstrated to be able to do that. In other words, if you already have established accumulation of arterial plaque in your blood vessels. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you basically, if your blood vessels on the imaging they do are already greatly narrowed, I mean, you're at, uh, you know, uh, an immediate risk of potential heart attack or stroke. Yeah. It's been shown that taking these polycosinols at a really tiny dosage, which is found in our product, uh, over time can actually reverse and remove that plaque, that arterial plaque that uh, is causing the, the strokes and the heart attacks, can remove it from the blood vessel. Uh, and a lot of the plaque is actually, if you look at the composition of it, is due to peroxidative byproducts of PUFA. So once again, PUFA is involved. And the polycosinols can actually, since the perm is already there, the polycosinols can prevent it from appearing in the, in the first place, but can also remove it if it's already there. And the other product is known as mitolipin. Right. It contains basically the saturated fatty acids, palmitic acid, and stearic acid but they're bound to the molecule choline. And choline is known to be very good at delivering whatever it's attached to it inside of the cell and actually inside of the mitochondria. Now, inside of the mitochondria, there is a very crucial component called cardiolipin. And that's why, you know, it's in, in this this, pro, this protein called cardiolipin contains lipids inside of it, right? That's why it's called cardiolipin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with, with, with advancing age, it's been demonstrated that the changes that the composition of the cardiolipin switches from almost fully saturated when we're young, or at least monounsaturated, to potential to increasingly uh, to increasing amount of polyunsaturated fats into the composition of this protein. And because this protein is crucial for the function of mitochondria, where most of the production of energy happens, uh, there are now several studies that are saying that the decline, energetic decline that we're seeing with age, is actually due to this change that occurs in the cardiolipin. In other words, if you can prevent the the desaturation of cardiolipin, if you can prevent the accumulation of PUFA into the cardiolipin, or if you can reverse the already present PUFA, you can displace it with saturated fats or monounsaturated fats, you should be able to restore the metabolic intensity back to the youthful age. And that's really the goal of mitolipin, uh, to basically carry these saturated fats because they're bound to choline, and like I said, choline is very good at getting into the mitochondria and deliver these saturated fats directly to the cardiolipin 
so that it can restore its composition back to what it was when we were 20 or even 15. And, and thus basically first displace the PUFAs or prevent the oxidative stress and also reverse the structure in a, to, a, to a state where our energy production is uh, at a youthful level. So Great. the combination of these two products, I think, is the best for opposing PUFA. I love it. I love talking stacks of Idea Labs. What we're going to stack together. So, all right. Now, what about reversing hair loss? I'm getting this a lot from people. Obviously, it's thyroid stuff, but do you have like the best stack for reversing hair loss? We should do a podcast in the summer. Obviously, I've I've hair loss, but in the summer, most of my hair loss is actually reverses. Oh, cool. Um, the the bad thing is that in the winter it increases again to, to the level that it is now. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've noticed that the, it, the, the, the changes are obviously metabolically driven. In the winter, we all feel sluggish. We all feel cold. Yeah. We all feel in a bad mood, right? Even medicine has a condition called seasonal affective disorder. So basically, kind of sits, uh, kind of explain that in the winter, we just don't feel normal, okay? We feel suboptimal, if there's a word to put it. Uh, and here, because it's considered a non-crucial component, of our of something that the body can dispense of without immediately endangering other functions. So hair loss is basically a sign that we're not producing sufficient amounts of energy. And since hair growth takes a, a significant amount of resources, when the body is not producing sufficient amount of energy, it says, okay, I'm going to get rid of or at least neglect things that are that I don't consider crucial. And mm-hmm. guess what? Hair growth is one of those things. Uh, uh, many women notice that they start to lose hair after becoming menopausal. Uh, it's not a coincidence. Your your production of energy uh, drastically declines after menopause. Mm-hmm. Men have something similar called andropause. It's not recognized officially by medicine, but it's there. If you look at the change in hormonal levels, if they're parallel those two women, basically men get a drop in testosterone and elevations in, in estradiol. Cortisol is always at a, you know, at a, at a high level. And then women get a drop in progesterone and a rise in estrone, which is not estrogen, so basically, it's the same condition in both men and women, just different hormonal hormonal factors underpin it. Uh, and also, men tend to also start losing their hair, uh, you know, or at least accelerate the, the hair loss after andropause hits. Uh, it's hard to find a man over sixty who does not have at least some degree of hair loss, even if they're not genetically predisposed. Which speaks strongly to the fact that this thing has an energetic component in it as part of it, right? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so several studies have demonstrated that uh, if you look at the scalp of men that are losing hair, uh, you'll see elevated levels of cortisol, you'll see ele- elevated levels of prolactin, you'll see elevated levels of estrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can you do? Well, you can apply things topically that improve the energetic production in the follicles because that's really what's going to determine, um, you know, the growth of the hair. Multiple studies have already proven beyond any doubt that the hair that the cares that are cells that are responsible for the production of hair, they're not dead. They're there. They're just in a sort of like a dormant state. Some, some signal is being sent uh, by the rest of the body to the scalp saying, I don't need you to expend the resources right now because we don't have them, right? We cannot afford it. So you sit, you sit quiet. And if things improve, then I'm going to send you the, the signal to start growing hair again. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like that you can actually kind of amplify that signal or at least send a good signal that, you know, now it can start growing by, by uh, administering topically things that either improve the production of energy or block the effects of these stress-related hormones whose effect is known to be anti-hair growth. So estrogen is known to cause uh, loss of hair. In fact, estrogen creams were sold back in the day uh, to basically for women to apply to the face if they had ex- excessive 
uh, facial uh, hair growth. Mm -hmm. So we know that estrogen is basically is, is anti-hair growth. Cortisol is also known to do the same. Um, in fact, people who go on glucocorticoid therapy um, for whatever it is, or, you know, either uh, arthritis or some kind of autoimmune condition, corticoids are very widely used in medicine. Uh, their doctor warns them, and the side effects in the article, the brochure, uh, the drug brochure, are pretty open about it. That one of the known side effects of excessive cortisol is loss of hair everywhere in the body and and on the scalp. Mm -hmm. So. What can, well, so you, you can apply things that are basically either blocking the effects of these stress steroids or increasing the production of energy or ideally both. So probably one of the best things you can do for hair loss is to a combination of topical T3 um, and progesterone. Well, why T3? Well, because T3 will be the master regulator of energy production. And cortisol, because it's capable of blocking both excessive cortisol and estrogen at the same time. So that will be the, the hormonal kind of like, because both of these are steroids, that will be the hormonal treatment. For people that are looking for things that are over the counter, several studies have shown that topical caffeine can sometimes help regrow hair. Mm -hmm. Topical aspirin can help regrow hair. Topical vitamin B3 can help regrow hair. Topical ATP, the adenosine triphosphate, the mass energy molecule, which is what we produce from food, can also has also been shown to promote hair growth. So we have these four components in our product, Solbam. Now, when yeah. I was initially developing it, it just so happens that these that these components also block the oxidative damage um, caused by the UV rays on our skin. So that's, I call it soul ban, blocking the sun, right? Banning the sun. But later on, I realized people sent me studies saying that, hey, look, you know, people maybe use it because it's the form, it's in the form of a spray. All of us supplements are liquid. This one is in a spray. So they can you can spray this on your scalp maybe in the morning because it has caffeine, tends to wake people up. And then at night, you maybe you may apply uh, T3 and progesterone. Um, Anti-serotonin chemicals such as Benadryl have also demonstrated uh, some success in, in reversing hair loss. So you can buy a Benadryl spray from the nearest grocery store or pharmacy, uh, and, and you can spray on your scalp. I, I don't think it will hurt. Ah, that's such good info. So Solban in the morning and then your tyronine and the progestine in the evening yep. is so good. Or Benadryl, oh. which, which makes people Benadryl. sleepy anyways. So yeah. it may be even good for like uh, improving sleep. Excellent. Okay. So we have to wrap up because I'm running out of time, but I do want to tell people how I look up one of your products because I will take the name and copy it and put it in Google and then I'll put repeat next to right. it. And that brings yeah. me to the repeat forum where you have listed every product and all the studies behind the ingredients in the product so that people can review for themselves. So if we missed some products for you guys today, which we did, what you're going to do is take that name that's on his website and put it in Google with repeat next to it. And you're going to get that hit on Google for the exact page where he's listed all the studies and what the product does and what it's good for. Right. And to answer your question, why doesn't the website say it? Of these things mm -hmm. well if you go to the website each of the product names there's a menu to the left which is the product name or the picture of the product itself and the name of the product on the actual picture both of these are links to that forum mm -hmm. and each product has a link to a forum thread where just as you said i described what the product is what the studies are behind it what i think it may be useful to work for why not on the website mostly liability issues okay fda does not want and it's become very yeah. nitpicky lately as to what they consider making a health claim. So what's a health claim? I cannot say Solban can cure boldness. Boldness is a recognized medical condition by the FDA. They don't want anybody making any claims unless they're, the FDA has approved that drug that you can cure boldness. Um, 
Uh, I cannot say things like uh, uh, Tokovit can prevent or cure cardiovascular disease. No, no. FDA says you have not tested your product in humans. We have not approved it for cardiovascular disease. You cannot make those claims. However, what I can do is provide the link to the forum, which is considered a public forum for discussion, more or less, because it's not just me. I put the studies that back up with evidence, animal or human, the usage of this product, and I, I can extract direct quotes from the study where the study authors who themselves are doctors are saying, we think that this can work for such and such condition. So it's not me saying it, it's the study authors. So it removes a, a little bit of the liability uh, if FDA decides to come after me and say, hey, why did you say that your product can cure or prevent this disease? Then my response is, nothing on my website says that. I have a link to another website where I've listed the studies and I've extracted other people's claims who are licensed physicians themselves. They said that this product can do X. If you have a problem with that, you go after those people or whoever published that study and allow those claims to be made, but I myself don't make them. So that's yeah. that's the explanation. That's Very why good. I don't have those things directly on the website, but they're easily reachable. It's just a click away. Yeah, and there's two websites. So the one you're talking about with the pictures is ideallabsdc.com where they can yep. click on those and it'll take them, like you said, right to the link for the product information. Yep. And then you have your Idealabs EWI, what, what is it? Yes, like so they're actually they're the same website, the, okay. e, the idealabs.ecwidequid.com. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the actual shopping cart. Okay. And if you go to the main website and you click on like app to cart and whatnot, it's yeah. actually using that second link. Okay. But okay. because the second link presents both the lab chemicals and the cosmetics in a single site, many people prefer to use the Equid site, but it doesn't have the links to the forum. So if you need information on the product, go to the idealabsdc.com site. If you just want a straight up order, then you go to the idealabs.equid.com site yes. and then you can order. And but I'll have, the same, same system, it, there's yeah. no separation. I'll have both of those in the show notes for people so they can check out both of them. But I know you're going to get busy here pretty soon. I definitely want to find a time to have you back on because we still need to talk more in depth about certain products as well as your bioanalysis, your hair mineral testing and your toenail testing and stuff like that. I've had Excellent. people doing that with good results. So. All right. Thank you so much for this. Again, it's so it. much fun to talk to you. you. And oh my gosh, I think I need a four hour podcast with you because we just, <laughs> I could listen to you all day. So people, people will get bored. I think, I mean, we could do four, but there should be no longer than I think. And I, there's a study that says after the 90 minute mark, no matter how interesting you are, people just tune you out. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's something where we'd have to get up and do a workout in between just to like shake things up a little bit or yeah. play some cat videos or something. So, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Agreed. All right. Well, thanks again, Georgie. We'll do it again when you have a chance and stay stay awesome because that's what you are. Stay healthy, stay sane, right? Because I'm in yeah. DC. Things, yeah. things here are crazy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So stay safe for sure. All right. Thank you. Bye for now. Appreciate it. Thank you. I love how unique you are and that your needs and diet are as unique as your fingerprint. That's why not every diet in the world will work for you because you're special, okay? So as your nutritionist, I believe in your bioindividuality and it's my job to act as your nutrition detective and find the root of your issues and create a more optimized U2.0. So are you looking to ease some digestive distress or maybe dial in your sleep? What about lowering environmental stress that could be causing, you know, stuff like undue anxiety? What about food struggles and emotional connections to food? Or maybe you're simply suffering from diet confusion and not 
sure where to start to improve your health, that's where I come in. So let's set up a free 15-minute call to see if I'm right for you. That's right. All you're going to do is email me at getfitwithjodell at gmail.com. That's J-O-D-E-L-L-E. And let's just chat about you and see if we're a good match when it comes to getting you the results you've been waiting for. And no matter where you are, you could be in Asia, Brazil, Chicago, or somewhere in between, we can connect via Zoom or phone or any way you like to get you the results and your health once and for all. Let me be your guide and let me get you there. I'm feeling a little blue today but in a good way, because I took my methylene blue, that is. Two of my favorite supplements for optimizing my mitochondria, those little energy factories in virtually every cell of our body, are a product called methylene blue and also magnesium. And both can be found really great sources at lifeblood.co, the most authentic and well-researched form of methylene blue and magnesium that I have found to date is the one carried by Lifeblood. We know magnesium is our calming mineral and responsible for over 800 hundred different processes in the human body, helping with calming you for sleep, easing constipation, creating a better heartbeat, thwarting chocolate cravings and sugar cravings, and even easing leg cramps and spasms, plus much, much more. And I don't know where I'd be during the last three years, during a time when many around us were ill without my methylene blue to keep my cells' immunity going. Methylene blue is antiviral, antiparasitic, antimicrobial, and even helps combat candida overgrowth. You can get yourself my two favorite supplements by clicking the link in the show notes for Lifeblood and using my promo code JODELL, J-O-D-E-L-L-E, to save on your very own purchase of those two items or any of the wonderful products at Lifeblood. Again, that promo code is J-O-D-E-L-L-E to save. And just visit the show notes below and click the link. I think you'll be glad you did.